Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. The entire industry is quite focused on this and trying to make the UK understand some of these points I've made, because I think that's where the success will lie. Today's guest details the EU and UK regulatory concerns that he believes should be keeping the world's largest hedge funds up at night. He calls on UK lawmakers to do more to address what he sees as an urgent need for a UK fund vehicle to help the country's asset management sector better compete with its rival European hubs. And he warns of the unfortunate regulatory repercussions arising from politicisation of the European rulemaking process. Leonard Inn is a member of the Executive Committee and co-head of the UK and EU Financial Services Regulatory Group at US law firm Sidley Austin. Hi Leonard, welcome to Following the Rules. Thank you Lucy for having me. So let's start with a quick overview of your role. Who do you typically advise and what's topping your to-do list currently? I co-head a regulatory group, so I group advise banks and payment institutions. I tend to focus more on the buy side, probably weighted a little bit more towards hedge fund managers. Some of the largest hedge funds are people I work with, but also some institutional asset managers, some private equity firms. I also advise the Managed Funds Association, which is the global trade body for hedge funds. And that role as an advisor to the Managed Funds Association, that is something of an advocacy role for alternative asset managers, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And obviously I can't speak specifically about individual projects we do for them, but as any trade body does, it would be representing the interests of the community and making representations where it's needed. So what's coming down the track in terms of EU rules for private funds and how can such funds prepare? There's a range of things that we're as an industry looking at right now in terms of getting the result that we think would be appropriate for the regulators and policymakers, but also allow the industry to continue trading and providing efficiency to capital markets. So it's a a two-way street. And what's very interesting about that process I found is that the regulators and policymakers are as interested in talking to you as you are to them. Because policymakers want to get it right. They want to be able to be reactive to the right issues. On the EU side, the one that we're probably most focused on is the Alternative Investment Fund Managers Directive to AIFLD, but there's effectively the recast of it, which is currently going through a legislative process. As just for your listeners, the way EU legislation is made is that the first thing that happens is that the European Commission proposes legislative text. What then happens is the European Parliament and the Council of the European Union individually 
go away and look at that permission proposal. Parliament and the council each then come up with their own versions of the text, i.e. amended by them. And then they get together in a room in something called a trilogue, where the parliament and the council, together with the commission, effectively agree on the final text that will then become the law of the European Union. So the AIFMD is being reviewed at the moment, and the result of that will become effectively AIFMD 2. So in that process right now, AIFMD 2 probably, we think, gets agreed towards the end of this year or maybe early next year. And typically in European Union legislation, there will be a two-year implementation period. In other words, this will become law only in 2025. So in that package are a bunch of different things that I think we'd all be interested in. Things like the issue of delegation, and let me explain what that means. So because of Brexit, What's happened is that there's now a lot of focus on the alternative investment industries primarily centered in the UK. So you've got lots of private equity funds, hedge funds, and other asset managers within the UK. Well, when a UK manager is now in a country outside the EU, but yet still very close to the EU, what they want to continue to do is continue to trade within European markets and, of course, have access to European investors. Now, the best way to do that is, in fact, to have an EU-based or EU-domicile asset management firm. So if I were just a UK firm, what I might do post-spread is set up a new asset management firm and affiliate in one of the main jurisdictions. Typically, that might be Germany, France, Dublin, Luxembourg, that sort of place. And then I will keep people in the UK who will do the day-to-day asset management activity and what happens is my affiliate in Germany, Ireland, whatever, will simply delegate investment authority back to the UK. Now, that's a perfectly legitimate and valid way of operating a fund. That model's been around forever. Now, the result of Brexit, of course, is that if you're sitting on the European Union side, you're concerned that, in fact, what's happened after Brexit is the UK gets their cake and eat it. In other words, you will have very large asset management firms within the UK who will continue to keep all their people in the UK They'll just set up a small little entity in, let's say, Dublin, and then delegate investment authority to the UK, which means, of course, that all the risky activity, i.e. making asset management decisions, remains in the UK. Revenue, fees will end up all in the UK. And that's, of course, if you're on the European Union side, you're thinking, well, that's not good for a couple of reasons. One of them might be, hang on, this is a, that's an Irish uses management company or AIFM, as an alternative fund manager, but yet, the decisions that affect the investors are being taken outside the union by a UK-based sub-manager. So they're concerned that if you have a whole bunch of investors in this European Union fund, and of course, EU funds tend to take EU investors, you're going to have EU investors' fortunes in the hands of a non-EU decision-maker on a day-to-day basis. That's a concern. Separately, of course, you're concerned that all the revenue is actually going to the benefit of a UK-based or non-EU-based asset manager rather than being brought within the EU and ultimately taxed within. So there's some valid investor protection reasons, of course, but there are also political reasons why the delegation model is now under review. And so the AIFMD2 seeks to tighten that model, not by banning it, because I think they recognize it would be silly to do that. After all, a lot of asset management expertise lies outside Europe, but to try and make it more controlled to ensure that you do not have what is effectively what they call a letterbox entity within the EU that delegates investment authority to someone outside the EU over which the European Union regulates a certain control. 
So they want to introduce an element of control. Now, thankfully, the text that is out there, from my perspective, is not as bad as it could have been. It would be really bad if, for example, law was to say, well, in order for an EU-based asset manager to delegate investment authority to a non-EU asset manager, the EU asset manager has to manage more than 50% of the AUM on a day-to-day basis. Now, that would not work simply because there aren't enough portfolio managers within the EU to be able to run funds of that size, right? So to introduce something like that would effectively kill a lot of the industry. So I'm glad they didn't suggest something as draconian as that. But it's in a slightly delicate legislative phase right now. And of course, we as council are helping to draft language that hopefully achieves the aims of the policymakers to make them comfortable that delegation is a sensible option but also to make it workable for the industry. It's really interesting you mentioned delegation as a point of concern because that potential of changes to that legal construct have peaked and trough over the many years since we first voted for Brexit in in 2016. And more recently, certainly from my conversations with those in your sector, concern seems to have dissipated quite significantly to where it was, say, in 2020 because EU policymakers were making noises as to the fact that they weren't going to make any dramatic changes to it there were concerns initially that it might, as a legal construct, it might be removed entirely, which now it's been made clear that's not going to happen. But my understanding of what you've just said is that should still be an issue that certainly those in the hedge fund sector should be keeping an eye on because there will be changes there. Yeah, that's right. And it's worth mentioning that one of the primary concerns of any overly political stance taken in the drafting of AFMD2 is that it doesn't just affect the UK, it affects everyone outside the EU. So it affects Japanese sub-managers, U.S. sub-managers. Now, the U.S. is the largest asset management center of the whole world. So there will be hundreds, if not thousands, of funds where the ultimate decision makers on a day-to-day basis are, in fact, in the U.S., not just in the U.K. So the U.S. asset management industry is as focused on this as the U.K. ones are. Because anything which is too political in nature does affect everyone else as collateral damage. That's one topic worth mentioning. Another one worth mentioning, because it's got a quite an interesting, again, political element to it, is the idea of what happens with offshore funds. Now, the EU has, for many years now, looked a little bit askance at offshore structure. They believe that some offshore jurisdictions, the Cayman Islands and so on, are uh, either bad from an AML perspective or bad from a tax avoidance perspective. And so they've always tried to put up barriers. Now, what's been happening during the AFMD2 drafting has been the introduction of provisions, which effectively say that any third country, by third country, they mean any non-EU country that is on either a list regarding AML, so effectively some kind of AML high-risk jurisdiction list, or a list regarding non-cooperative tax jurisdictions, They say, if you're a third country and you are on either of those two lists, then you can't have your product sold in the EU. So, for example, the Cayman Islands today, as of this recording, is on the AML high-risk jurisdiction list for the EU. It was previously in 2020 on the non-cooperative tax jurisdiction list. So if this law were to be adopted today and take effect today, it would mean that Cayman funds would not be marketed to EU investors because the Cayman would be on one of those two lists. Now, 
the general expectation is that Cayman Islands will be removed from this list probably later this year. But of course, the minute you have this threat of these lists, people, of course, start to get a little bit concerned about some of these jurisdictions. And again, we're going through a legislative process, but there are some suggestions from some of the policy that that list should be extended, not just to countries on a high-risk list, but also on a medium risk. So the, the, my point solely is that it's no longer an objective process, which means that it becomes a potentially political process. So within the EU, because of the political wins, someone might say, well, we don't like country X any longer. We're going to make the criteria such that country X will fail the criteria and therefore get added to the list. And therefore, that's how we block out their products. So it removes this sort of objective international standard makes it unfortunately possibly political process, which I think is probably not helpful for international capital markets. It's not helpful for the EU, the EU's stated aim of developing a capital markets union, right? So you've heard the term, and many businesses have heard of the term, the capital markets union. This term has been around, I think now since 2015, but the EU has admitted it hasn't progressed very far. Now to me, as an international lawyer, you can't really have a successful capital markets union within the EU if, in fact, the rest of the world doesn't think that you are playing nicely with everyone else. So the minute you start having Fortress Europe or systems that effectively block out capital from other parts of the world coming and playing within the EU, that, I think, ultimately works against the EU. If that is their aim, I'm sure that's not their aim, but my point solely is that certain political pressures might push certain decision makers to make those sorts of decisions, which would be unfortunate. Okay, let's hope we avoid that. So what's coming in terms of UK rules for hedge funds and private equity funds? It's worth private funds industry monitoring how the law develops in the UK and the EU independently. So the UK has got the largest alternative asset management industry, and I believe general asset management as well. The UK, of course, depending on who's in power, our government will make certain decisions about its own asset market framework. Now, there's a future regulatory framework that already contemplates a new framework for funds or fund management. There is currently a new financial services and markets bill. Now, for the benefit of listeners, the UK's financial services framework is built on something called the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000 or FISMA. And FISMA is effectively being rewritten. So things are happening within the UK, and those things will not just be on a future framework for funds, will also be for market structure, which of course is important for especially trading funds like hedge funds who trade in capital markets every day. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, the EU itself is making its own changes. Suppose you are a US-based asset management fund looking at traditionally investing and trading within European markets. Well, your life just got a bit more complicated because the obligation of how you trade is going to differ depending on where you are. If you're trading, for example, in the UK, well, the Financial Services Markets Bill says we're going to do away with something called the shared trading obligation, which is a construct introduced by MIFID. MIFID is an EU regulation. MIFID says that shares that are effectively listed, to use the colloquial term, listed on European capital trading venues like stock exchanges, have to be traded on those venues. The UK would say, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense if we are now 
just the UK alone. Why would I force London Stock Exchange shares to only be traded in London Stock Exchange? I don't think that's sensible. And so when you look at it in that context, it starts to make sense why the UK might diverge with that. So if you're a US-based international manager looking at Europe, you're going to be faced with slightly different rules. Rules on short selling are also likely to change, right? So the thresholds for net short position reporting were slightly different between the UK and the EU until you caught up with the UK. So there's a lot of leapfrogging going on. And as the government, look, Jacob Rees-Mogg here has already said, and the Financial Services and Markets Bill contemplates, that what we call retained EU legislation, so in other words, parts of UK legislation that were retained from the EU after we left the EU, those need to be revoked. Now, the thing that makes the most press, he says, well, we should have a sunset clause. In other words, if we don't say anything or do anything, that law, that's EU law, simply disappears off our statute books at date certain. Now, that's a controversial statement because, of course, you don't want a situation where, I don't know, for example, Parliament here hasn't got enough time to review 4,000 pieces of legislation and suddenly a thousand of them suddenly disappear. You have a lawless country in certain areas. That won't happen, of course. But the statement is clear, which is, we should let EU law expire if we don't take steps to affirmatively say we want this law to be looked at and rewritten or revised for the UK's own purposes. Now, there's a lot of common sense about that. Of course, you need laws that are relevant for your country. There's no point having EU law in the UK, especially when the EU law might have been driven by a specific member state's concerns. So there's a lot of sense to what that proposal means, but you do have to realize it means that we're going to take every piece of retained EU law, look at it, in some cases decide, actually, this is actually fine, we leave it as it is, but they're going to take a lot of steps to change it. And I think any ambitious Tory government certainly will have that kind of aim in order to show they're delivering on Brexit. In relation to the UK Financial Services and Markets Bill, which is the UK government's efforts to unpick the UK rulebook from the EU equivalent, is there anything the government has proposed that you think might be unworkable in practice or any missed opportunities there? Right now, the Financial Services and Markets Bill is not so focused on the kinds of things that we've been talking about. There isn't stuff that's directly relevant for the buy side of our hedge funds. Yeah, maybe the only thing worth mentioning is effectively a new designated activities type of framework, which means that the regulators get an ability to designate certain activities as something that should be regulated in a certain way. In other words, a broadening of the current framework, which is under a piece of legislation called the regulated activities order. So there's going to be some flexibility, I think, built into the financial services market bill for that. And I can only imagine that might come in useful for certain new asset classes as we develop, crypto assets and so on. Crypto assets, ESG, all those things are things we haven't yet mentioned, but those are the things that I think we want to focus more on as we go ahead. So setting aside the financial services market bill, which as I said, doesn't directly have targeted provision dealing with hedge funds and so on, we're looking at the future regulatory framework, for funds, we're looking at things like the sustainable disclosure requirements of which we're expecting consultation from the FCA really at any time now. We're looking at the broader ESG framework. And by that, I mean within the EU as well, because many UK-based managers will market products and funds into the EU. Once you do that, you're subject to the EU's sustainable finance disclosure obligation. Right? So those are the moving pieces, I think, that the buy side firms really have to pay attention to. And as I said earlier, Unfortunately, because of Brexit, you have to do two things at once. Now, it's great for lawyers like me because I end up effectively doubling my work, but 
if you're an actual market participant, having to be conscious of UK provisions that start to differ from EU provisions, I think that's going to be the main challenge. Is it a missed opportunity that there isn't much attention given to the alternative asset funds space within the financial services markets bill? Not really, because the financial markets bill is really about dealing with certain issues that have been raised, so market structure and so on. That's not to say they're not dealing with things to do with hedge funds. The future regulatory framework for funds is a separate thing. Now, when I talk about the future framework for funds, you have to bear in mind that is very different from the question, are we creating conditions within the UK that will allow the UK to compete effectively in the fund management industry? For example, creating fund structures within the UK, which we've failed to do successfully, although we've tried for the last decade or two. And of course, when I say creating a funds framework, fund vehicles of the kind that you have in Ireland and Luxembourg that have really allowed Ireland and Luxembourg to develop those very successful industries. We want to do the same in the UK. When we were part of the EU, we were already saying to ourselves, why don't we have an industry domicile within the UK, investment vehicles and structures within the UK, instead of constantly using Irish and Luxembourg vehicles? Now that we're outside the EU, it suddenly becomes much more urgent, right? Because there's no reason for us to be using Irish and Luxembourg vehicles if we can get vehicles in the UK that work. Now, that is tricky because there's a lot of historical baggage around that, including our tax framework. Fund vehicles have to be tax neutral. As someone working in the industry, it's always a little bit frustrating when people look at an offshore jurisdiction and say, tax dodger. Well, no. I mean, the whole point of a fund vehicle, it ought to be tax neutral so that fund investors don't get hit with layers of tax they weren't expecting. So you look at the UK, they need to design a structure that's tax efficient, that competes with Luxembourg and Ireland. And I think we can do it. It's a little frustrating. We haven't done it. I was born and raised in Singapore. I came here into the UK 25 years ago. But my point is, Singapore now has a vehicle called the Variable Capital Company, VCC, that competes with Cayman funds, Irish funds, they managed to do that. I believe from the starting gun until the time it was implemented, in about two years. Incredible. They basically said, we decided we need to build a fund structure that works tax efficient, takes all the right boxes for fund managers need. We are going to do this. Two years later, they have a vehicle that, and I believe the last statistic I saw was that there are over 700 VCCs in use right now. That's incredible. And if we're talking about being Singapore and FEMS, maybe we should copy Singapore's efficiency in developing a fund structure that can compete internationally. It's not perfect, of course. No fund structure is perfect. The Irish, they're constantly reinventing themselves and we need to do the same. Are you in discussion with any UK lawmakers around the need to rethink that fund structure point? Me, not personally. I mentioned earlier the work we do for the MFA. The MFA is a US headquartered organization. So of course, it has to be a little bit careful in how it goes into local issues. But let's just say that the investment fund industry, and, and you have to bear in mind that's a massive industry, I'm not just talking about hedge funds, we're talking about private equity funds, venture capital funds. The entire industry is quite focused on this and trying to make the UK understand some of these points I've made, because I think that's where the success will lie. And look, again, it really depends on who's in government at any given time, right? We know that there's the point about sunset laws being pushed by Jacob Reed's law might be different if the next government were a Labour government. I have no idea. But the point is, I think it's the UK's interest to try and do anything it can. Because the fact of the matter is we are not in the EU any longer. And whatever your thoughts are on Brexit, we now stand alone as a single country. We've got to develop a military that competes effectively with Ireland and Luxembourg. And I know 
talking to market participants that Ireland and Luxembourg are actually a little bit nervous because they know that there's every possibility that UK does succeed in building a fund structure that people can start to use without all the trappings and oversight of the European Commission and the Parliament. Because what has been happening for many years now is that because Ireland and Luxembourg have been the traditional alternative fund domiciles within the European Union, that's all been fine while the UK was there. But what the European Union doesn't want is for Ireland and Luxembourg effectively to become the two jurisdictions used by the UK for the UK's own benefit. So there's a big political component there right now. Okay, and obviously with all this regulatory change, that creates an additional workload for the watchdogs charged with policing the behaviour and prudential risks within the UK financial services sector. And Brexit changes have come in line with a tougher economic climate, more concern around climate change, more focus on environmental, social and governance matters as a result of that. The aftermath of the pandemic, I'm just naming a few upcoming challenges. I'm interested to know whether or not you think the UK regulatory structure is such that it can cope with everything that's coming down the track in the UK. Do you think that that needs to change? Obviously, Liz Truss has suggested that consolidating UK regulators would be a good thing to do. Do you agree with that? My own personal view is that I don't see that as being critical. In other words, it might be something to think about. Yes, we could debate that. But in the current context, it seems to me there's a lot more that needs to be done that is more important than the regulatory structure in terms of whether or not you fold the PRA and FCA into a Bank of England type entity or for that matter, some other new entity. I think that's a little bit of a distraction. I don't think the system has failed in that context. Don't forget this. So what we have right now, the PRA looking after prudential regulation and the FCA looking after conduct regulation, I think it's been called the Twin Peaks style of regulation. It's been around and it's been used successfully by many countries. I don't think there's any particular model that works better than some other. I'm sure there are numerous academic studies looking at the different regulatory models, Twin Peaks or single regulator. So there are probably arguments both ways, but there's so much else to get done, right? I don't think it's a constructive use of time to say, well, finger in the air, I've decided that the Twin Peaks structure doesn't work, we're just going to fold everything into one single regulator. I'd like to know what the hard empirical evidence is. Because it's got to be, not only is there evidence that the current structure has failed, which I don't think it has, but it also has to be that there's so much evidence that there's such a risk to our financial system that we have to get that done ahead of all the rest of the post-Brexit legislation has to be done. There's several thousand pieces of legislation that looked at, right? So you're going to spend a lot of time and ministerial and treasury energy designing a new regulatory structure. Wouldn't that be better you designing a new fund structure? <laughs> Again, from my selfish perspective as a funds-focused lawyer, developing a new funds framework, I'd rather have time spent on that than spent on fixing something that doesn't, to my mind, need to be fixed. Not perfect, but doesn't need to be fixed right now. Okay, interesting. Given your advocacy role for the Managed Funds Association, I can imagine you get a, a significant degree of foresight into what's coming down the track from a regulatory perspective. What do you think we'll be talking about in five years' time in relation to regulation of the alternative fund sector? Well, this is based on what I see continued interest in crypto assets. I think that's going to shape a lot of thinking over the next three to five years. 
there's a simple question of jurisdiction, whether you want to regulate thing at all. And the thing, of course, is if you say the word crypto to someone, they're going to think cryptocurrency. Well, currency isn't regulated. So why would cryptocurrency be regulated? Right? So there are many different ways to look at that. But yet, if you say cryptocurrency right now in the US, there's some parts of the US regulatory system that will say, well, I think that should be treated as a commodity. It raises the interesting question. There's a political element there. So I think we're going to talk about crypto assets for a very long time, because if you think about investor protection, it is weird, frankly, to think of investor protection in terms of currency. Right now, we do not have investor protection for people who trade in spot currencies, right? Derivative contract, that's regulated. But simple trading in currency is not regulated per se, right? And yet you want to do that cryptocurrencies. That suggests to you that cryptocurrencies are not in fact looked at as currencies, i.e. things to buy and sell things with, but rather as an actual investment asset of sorts. So I think that whole discussion will need to be trashed out hopefully sooner rather than later. And of course, the real use of crypto assets is the blockchain technology, not the crypto asset itself. So as you all know, there are lots of experiments right now and lots of successful experiments regarding using blockchain to signify ownership, using blockchain to signify a transaction has occurred the way the parties say it has occurred. All those things are very useful, but there's too much noise on the fact that many, many people have lost a lot of money in cryptocurrency trading to focus on those things that actually matter. So I think that whole picture will, will become clear over the next three to five years. Things are moving very quickly. I think how crypto assets affect market structure, how blockchain technology will inform market structure, settlement of transactions, certainty of ownership, clearing systems. Right? Do you need trades to be centrally cleared if you have everything on a blockchain? I think that's the most interesting part of regulation for the next three to five years. That's causing a lot of problems because there's just no consistency amongst regulators. So I think I'd stop there. Okay, so plenty to keep your clients concerned and up at night. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been incredibly informative. Thank you very much for your time. No, thank you so much, Lucy, again for inviting me. It's been a delightful to be on your show. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.